I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, we discuss street harassment and catcalling. Isn't that nice? Well, as someone who has been masturbated at in public, myself, um, multiple times, it's happened to me like six times in public. Yeah. That is assault. It is it is terrifying as a woman. And it shouldn't be dismissed as some passive, you know, expression of his sexuality. And again, we have this, this story in the culture that anything that men do with their dicks is women's fault. As if an adult man doesn't know what he's doing with his penis. Um, that's ridiculous. That was Dr. Sarah Myrie. She's a climate scientist and an activist. And Sarah has been a guest on the electorate a few times. And whenever she's on, she always pushes me to think more deeply about, about everything. That clip, in fact, was from an earlier episode that we did together discussing the Me Too movement and male redemption. You know, and it wasn't our intention to discuss our experiences with public sexual harassment, but you know, it's really inevitable. Talk to any woman you know, and they will have a story. Public sexual harassment is pervasive and it's oppressive. And that's what my first guest today is here to discuss. Dr. Fiona Gray is a research fellow in the Durham Law School in the UK, and her work specializes in violence against women and girls and also philosophy. On this episode, Fiona and I discuss her new book titled The Right Amount of Panic. It's about how women trade freedom for safety in public. We discuss these public intrusions, which range from catcalling or wolf calling, as they refer to it in the UK, or even assault. And like Sarah Myrie described in the opening clip, these incidents can be terrifying. But Fiona's research for this book examines just how much energy women put into simply avoiding sexual violence, the amount of work and labor that we exert, and the fear and the panic that we often carry. And it all starts at a really young age. Dr. Gray interviewed several women for her book, and here she is describing an encounter that a woman recounted of a really confusing experience she had when she was just a girl. Yeah, so that was a woman called Claire from memory, um, who, so all, all the uh, women gave pseudonyms, so some of them are real names, some of them are uh, not real names, but she told this really interesting story about she grew up on an estate and she had her school was quite close to her estate and so it was quite safe for her to walk, or her parents felt it was quite safe for her to walk. Um, to and from school and she was either coming back or going to a fancy dress party that they had at the school and she had forgotten to tell her parents that it was fancy dress as kids do and so at the last minute they had to kind of struggle around the house and try and find something and and I'm not sure actually what she went is in the end but they they managed to put a um, like a black bin bag on her bottom half so it looked like she had a skirt on and she was saying that when she was either going to or coming back from event at school at seven years old she had some men uh whistle at her or like call out like well hey as she was walking and one of the things that really struck me about her story it's very similar to some of the other ones that that women told me of when they're around that time is that because she was seven years old she actually didn't understand what that meant she didn't understand why the men were doing that she you know i mean she didn't understand what sexual harassment was or that because she was female, she was going to be a target of it at some point in her life. And so she kind of came home and told the people there that, you know, this had happened and she wasn't quite sure what it was or what it meant. And, um, you know, that their response was, oh, that's a bad thing. You know, they weren't saying this is good, this shouldn't have happened. But then they all of a sudden went, oh, it's because of what you're wearing. It's because, you know, what you're wearing must look like it's a mini skirt or it's a leather skirt or it's a short skirt. So the problem is, both the men's behavior, but a little bit what you're wearing. And it just really stands out that, you know, this is a seven-year-old girl who was wearing a bin bag liner, literally, and that that still gets seen as being a justification for men to interrupt, intrude, and harass her when she's in public. Right. You know, that's amazing to me that this happened when she was seven. And also that so early that people would put the blame on her behavior when, first of all, she didn't really even make the decision herself. Her parents helped her make the decision, right? (laughs) You know, and I, and I, uh, you know, have a seven-year-old and the the innocence, they're really, really innocent. Seven-year-olds aren't thinking about sexual harassment or thinking about that at all, really. Absolutely. I mean, that's really shown in her response that she didn't know 
you know, she didn't know what this was. And what's interesting is that over time, what I saw was that women start to change that response where at seven, because she's so innocent and, and so naive, she goes home and immediately tells somebody. Over time, women learn to not go home and immediately tell somebody because the response you're going to get is going to be a little bit dismissive like that. It might blame you. Um, it might call you narcissistic or paranoid. And so it, it really shows, you know, this little seven-year-old having no idea what the response was going to be and how that first response is so important because it actually impacts how she learns to make sense of this as she goes through her life. Yeah, you know, it's funny, you know, thinking back on my own experiences and I think one of the earliest memories I have is one where there was, you know, a creepy guy driving around the neighborhood asking young girls for hugs. Mm -hmm. You know, we were warned to stay away from this blue car. But the second memory I have was of similar to hers was about my clothing. Like so much of this is intertwined with a woman's appearance or a girl's appearance, you know, being warned, you know, make sure your skirt isn't too short or make sure, you know, all of the baggage and the the responsibility that's put on women. Yeah, absolutely. And and that there's no way of getting that right. You know, that that I've spoken to women who have been blamed when they've been wearing a coat, like a full length, long, big wool coat, because it was red and red attracts attention. And so you should know not to wear a red coat. Um, and I've spoken to women that have been harassed when they've been wearing a short skirt, you know, and so you've got on both sides, like you either can completely cover yourself up or you don't cover yourself up it doesn't really matter because either way something that you're doing is going to be seen as being the cause of this kind of behavior rather than the cause actually being located in the way that society has situated men and has situated women and has told men repeatedly through lots of different avenues that it is okay to um interrupt a woman to comment on her appearance to to judge a woman on her appearance and to value a woman based on what she looks like right and you know even our schools perpetuate that i was thinking you know all of the school dress codes which are which are kind of focused on the girls right yeah it's a really good point we had over here this was a couple of years ago in yorkshire there was um they were trying to make i think it was girl skirts had to be below the knee or there was some kind of comment about girl skirts because the male teachers were finding it distracting and the fact that as a society, we can in any way say that that is an appropriate response for male teachers to be talking about finding 15, 16 year old girls distracting because of what they're wearing. I mean, that just that just shocks me. Our kids are in school so they can learn and be educated by adults, not so that adults can view them in any kind of way that would cross over into sexual harassment or or a sexual type of gaze, but it shows how embedded this idea of women's clothing, women's actions as being responsible for men's violence is. Can you help establish the scope of this? How do you define sexual harassment or public harassment or street harassment specifically? Because, you know, some behaviors, I think that, you know, people say, oh, that just falls into the realm of friendliness. And, you know, for a lot of people, the boundaries aren't clear. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, there's there's lots of problems with definitions around this area, and it's one of the reasons why it's been so overlooked for so long. I think that now, since everything that's happened with Me Too, there's been a much bigger focus on it. We've just had Parliament over here has just finished an inquiry on public sexual harassment, which has been amazing. That would have been unimaginable when I when I started looking at this in in like 2010, 2011. But one of the reasons why it's been so missed is because there are those differences of definitions. Even there, you know, it's difficult for you to know. We don't even really. Know Know what this is called? Is it public sexual harassment? Is it uh, street harassment? Is it male intrusion? Like we find it really hard. We don't have a word for it yet. That means that research, when it tries to address this, a lot of the times are addressing different things. So some studies will include things like Wolfenstein being commented on in a sexual way that made you feel uncomfortable or being touched in public. Others will also include things like being followed or feeling as though you're being followed or being stared at or feeling as though you're being stared at in public, right the way up to other studies. I mean, when I was kind of looking at it and trying to define it, I included things like rape that took place in public spaces where the perpetrator was a stranger. Because when women were talking about these experiences, it was very difficult for them to say exactly when something started and when something stopped. You know, like So there was one woman, for example, who, who Beck, who talks about an attempted rape that took place uh, in public space after a stranger, a male stranger on a tube stop had walked past her, kind of stared at her in, the, in a way that made her feel uncomfortable and said hello. 
And I'm sure many of us have had that experience. And, and she, you know, said hello back because we're taught to be polite and that you should engage and, you know, all of this stuff. And so she said hello back. And then he walked down the platform and stared at her. And then when she got off at the other end, um, she heard steps behind her and she turned around. She saw it was him. And at that moment, she knew that something was really wrong because he would have had to follow her over a number of different stops, um, tube lines. And and then he actually followed her and attempted to rape her and she was able to get into her gate before he was, which was fantastic. Um, but that for me is a, you know, that's a form of public sexual harassment. It's also a form of public sexual violence. It's also a form of attempted rape. So it's the categories kind of blur into each other and overlap. So it's very difficult to pin down this phenomenon. But but the thing that makes it quite clear is that when you talk to women, women know women know this. Women and girls know this. Um, they've all had experiences. Once you start to explain it, there has been no one that I've spoken to that hasn't been able to say, as you just have, yes, I can remember this experience from childhood. And actually, I remember these couple of weird things that happened you know, in my adult life. The things that we forget are the things that happened maybe earlier this morning or yesterday or last week because we learn to forget them and to dismiss them and to downplay them. But it's such a common experience and for for men I think we do have again after me too there's been a lot of discussion from men saying um at least at least in the UK you know does this mean is this the end of flirting does this mean that heterosexual men are not going to be able to talk to a woman that they find attractive and I think that those kind of those things it, it belittles how complex we are as, as human beings and how much we can read other people's verbal and physical and social cues that it's actually not very hard to tell when you are making someone feel uncomfortable it's not very hard to tell when somebody is maybe engaging with you but doesn't want to she keeps looking down at her book she keeps turning to her mobile phone she's moving away from you um, but you're still sitting with her on the bus and trying to engage her and engage her in conversation and so I do think that sometimes, it's a way of deflecting uh, responsibility again back onto women. So something like, oh, you know, how are we to know you guys make it so confusing for us men to know where the line is? Um, how are we supposed to be able to behave appropriately? But the fact that, I mean, to be honest, the majority of men do behave appropriately and don't sexually, sexually harass women in public. And that to me says it's actually not that hard and this kind of behavior is purposeful and, and it has an intent behind it. Right. That's a really excellent point. I was just thinking about that. I mean, the idea that, you know, they're putting the work back on to women, right? The work on to women yeah. to give them a definitive list of things that they can and cannot do when more than likely most men do understand what the boundaries are. Yeah. I mean, the research that's been done shows that, you know, we as human beings, we are incredibly built for empathy and built to be able to understand emotionally what is happening for other human beings. It's been part of our evolutionary um, benefit, you know, to, to live as a community, to be able to know what's happening for other community members. You know, we know this, again, you've got a child, the, the way that children can really read their mother's expression and their father's expression and the way that parents learn to become quite adept at responding to their baby's needs, um, even when they're in a pre-verbal stage, that continues through adult life. And so research that's been done on something called sexual miscommunication, for example, which is the idea that sexual assault and sexual violence rape happens because of a misunderstanding, because um, someone didn't communicate no strong enough or, you know, one, one party, the male party generally thought that this was something that the other party wanted, but the other party didn't. But, you know, there was miscommunication. And the research evidence for that shows that it's really, really weak, that actually people are very, very good at understanding cues, whether they be verbal or whether they be nonverbal, to understand what other people, how other people are responding to them and what other people want. Whether or not someone decides to respect those cues is a whole different thing. Right. I just thought of a really terrible analogy, but I'll use it anyway. It's just that, you know, boundaries in every other respect are understood, right? If someone, you know, is sitting next to you on a, on a bus stop and they put their wallet down that's filled with money, you aren't going to accidentally think that, that you know, they're giving you the money, right? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. It's, it's a really good, that's a really good example. Yeah. We know, we know these things, you know, if you invite someone out for dinner and that like a friend, if you say, oh, do you want to do this or your partner? Um, and they say, oh, maybe, you know that that means they don't really want to do right. it, you know, oh, kind of, you know, you know, we know that that means no, it's just whether or not we decide to go, oh, we're going to take that kind of and we're going to try and push it and see if we can get it to a yes. Um, that's where the difference comes. But the actual 
understanding of what somebody else means is is it's pretty intuitive for us. So can you define what safety work means? The main thing really that came out of the study that I did with women in the UK on sexual harassment in public that I was super surprised by, which was brilliant because doing research, you always want to find something that you weren't expecting. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes my job fun. Was that So how I did it was I interviewed women at the beginning and then I asked them to keep a notebook for between, I think it was two weeks to two months of things that happened in public spaces. So to record, um, you know, the, the little things that we forget, the staring, the little comments, feeling like you're being followed. And then we had a second uh, follow-up interview to talk through what they'd found. And so when I started this, I was expecting, you know, that women would come back to me with notebooks full of all these things that had happened and we would be able to discuss them and, you know, it would be great. And what happened for the majority of women um, was that there actually wasn't at all as much as they had expected there to be. You know, in the first interviews, they were saying that there, you know, it'd be rare if this didn't happen every week. Um, This is something that becomes just part of going outside. And what they found when they were looking for it was that that actually wasn't the case, that it wasn't happening as much as they were feeling like it was happening because they were preparing themselves in advance for it to happen. And so they were doing a whole bunch of things that they hadn't even really entirely made conscious in order to try and prevent or try and avoid or try and reduce the likelihood of them being intruded on. So really simple things like um, uh, making sure that your mobile phone, you've always got your mobile phone on, taking headphones out with you, wearing sunglasses, to choosing particular spaces and places on public transport. So when I started asking women about these things, you know, from a number of interviews, it kept coming up. And so when I did start asking women, you know, do you get onto a train and choose a particular seat? A number of women were able to say, yeah, I always sit next to a woman or I always sit in a seat that doesn't have two seats either side of it or I will stand up, you know, close to the exit or if I'm getting off a bus and there's uh, someone on there that's made me feel uncomfortable or there's any kind of man on there really and, and I'm not feeling that comfortable, I'll make sure that he gets off first or I'll hang back a bit until the last minute before I get off so that he doesn't know exactly what my stop is. I'll take particular routes home. I'll wear particular things. So women talking about taking out baseball caps with them, which this really stuck in my mind. Baseball caps. So one woman in particular talking about she had long blonde hair and she would talk about taking out a baseball cap late at night. So she'd be able to put her hair into a baseball cap. So she felt like she wasn't that identifiable on the street. Women talking about taking flat shoes, not only for comfort, but also so if they needed to, they could run. All of these things, just daily, habitual, little things, that when you take it together, you start to see that there is a lot of work that women are putting into trying to feel safe in public space. And that work isn't recognised. It's not recognised by us. You know, we don't think about it. It just becomes what we do. And it's very rarely recognised publicly. We have over here, and often we have um, police safety campaigns that happen around Christmas when it's like the party season and there's lots of work parties. And they'll, they'll always say things like, you know, make sure if you're leaving, you know, always directed at women. If you're leaving, make sure you leave with a friend or don't let your friends leave alone or don't get too drunk or just basically be careful, be very, very careful women. And what those messages do is they don't in any way acknowledge the amount of work that women are already doing. They don't say anything that says, hey, women, we know you're having to do a whole lot of extra work that the majority of men are not having to do just to feel safe. And and that sucks. And as the police, we're going to try and do better to help you feel safer. Instead, it does that thing again, where it responsabilizes women at the same time as making them feel like all of this work that they're doing is pointless, because they still need to be told what to do to feel safe, because actually, you know, women are a little bit clueless. So it all kind of comes together and it sits alongside all of the other forms of work that women generally have to do that are forms of unpaid labor. So things like the emotional labor, often in jobs, but also often in relationships, not just intimate relationships, but friendships with men, women having to take the bulk of the emotional labor, household labor. I mean, you know, we're still 2018 and and still... There's a great discrepancy in the amount of household labour that women do, particularly invisible forms of work like the administration of the house, really basic, boring admin jobs, whereas men are maybe helping out more 
with you know cleaning and, and things like that women are still organizing the school runs and and all of that kind of stuff and this is just an extra form of work that women are being asked to perform without any form of recognition right right I want to go back to something you said about the the lack of clear lines for women and that, that speaks to the fear that you're talking about and what I mean by that is that I think what a lot of people don't understand is that street harassment for women or public harassment, there isn't necessarily a clear line as to when that may turn violent or when that may turn into a rape. So, you know, A, that's where the fear comes from, because it could be someone who's just, you know, catcalling you or it could be someone who's going to follow you home and they may assault you. Right. We have no clear way of knowing when it's going to turn. Right. And so I also want to talk about this gap. There's a gap in the amount of work and the amount of fear that women feel, you know, based on when you ask them to record the diary and what actually happens to yep. them. Right. Well, yeah, I don't, both of those things are connected. So there's something in um, criminology, it, it, you may have heard it, like, called the fear of crime paradox. And it's always kind of brought out. I was at a conference actually last week in Sweden and everyone was talking about it. It was about crime and fear in public spaces. And this fear of crime paradox is really consistent across research, across decades, that shows that women are more scared of crime in public spaces, but men are actually more likely to be victims. And a lot of research has been put in to try and explain why, you know, and it's always focused on women's fear as being irrational, not on men as irrationally understanding actually how much at risk they are in public. And one of the one of the big kind of explanations is this idea of a, a shadow of sexual assault thesis, which is the idea that women's fear in public spaces is underpinned by this particularly gendered fear around sexual assault, that women are targeted in reality for for sexual violence in ways that men are not, but also that women exist in a world where violence against women and sexual violence is continuously pumped out in, in all different media venues. You know, it's the subject of so many movies and TV shows and films and women read media reports of other forms of sexual violence that women have experienced. So it becomes in our lives a very lived possibility combined with the fact that because it's a reality for so many women and girls, more than we will ever know, this is something that has happened. It's happened in our past. It's happened as children. It's happened in our teenage years. It's happened with our husbands as adults. And so those two things combined, both our old, our experience that this is actually something that really does happen to women and really does happen to us, combined with these constant messages that this is something that happens to women, means that we have a really particular fear that is around sexual assault. That means exactly as you said, that someone may be wolf whistling at us can evoke that feeling of, and it doesn't happen all the time, of course, but it can evoke a feeling of, you know, if someone is willing to, if someone is looking at me in a sexual way, in a way that I don't have control of, what else might they be able to do sexually that I don't have control of? So there's that kind of side of it. But then the other thing that I'm started to think about around the fear of crime paradox is maybe what it's showing us, maybe that gap between women's fear and what they experience, maybe that's showing us actually that women's safety work is quite successful because we can't we can't really know how successful it is. You know, if you decide I've got to go to, to the shops later on and it's going to be dark because it's winter here. And so, you know, if I decide to go out and to stick by the main road the whole way rather than go down a back alley that I can go down, which I probably I probably will decide to go down by the big road. Um, I'm not able to measure whether or not I just avoided some form of sexual harassment, you know, because it, it's it's the absence of something that could have happened, but it also could have not happened. So my behavior changed me being able to know whether or not that was ever going to happen to begin with. So I can't measure how successful it is. But I wonder if, if some of what that gap is showing us is that actually women's work is quite successful, that we have this fear. And because of this fear, we act in particular ways in public space. And that is reducing the amount of crime in public that we experience it's going to be very difficult for us to know if that's the case but the fact that it's never even be offered as an option you know it's never been looked at in that way that women's resistance is actually successful that we're actually quite capable and we've been doing really well and we can't get it right all of the time you know we're not going to get it right all of the time sometimes we're going to get it wrong sometimes for for whatever reason we're going to choose to feel freer rather than feel more constrained but more safe so we're going to choose to go down the back alley because actually it's really quiet 
and the road is really busy and it's quite nice there because there's some trees. And so sometimes we're, we're, we're going to choose differently and, and sometimes things are going to happen because we're not actually responsible or able to control how other people interact with us. And those are the only times that we can count. So all we ever focus on is, is women's failure in terms of keeping themselves safe. And we never look at actually how successful most of us are a lot of the time at stopping forms of sexual harassment, sexual violence and crime in public. Yeah, when I read about that in your book, I was a bit confused about how to feel about that because, I mean, it is good that, you know, possibly that the safety work is working, right? But it also kind of sends the message that that, that we should continue the safety work. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it for me, I don't think it necessarily follows. So we can say on one hand, we're doing a job where we're actually quite capable at doing this and also on the other hand um, at the same time critique why are we having to do this this is ridiculous we need to come together as a society and make sure that all people feel safe enough to move through public space freely that public space is there for everybody and we shouldn't be having women and girls routinely restricting their enjoyment and their access of it because they don't feel safe so I think for me you can hold both of those two things together I definitely wouldn't want to be suggesting that you know basically women are doing all this work so everything's fine let's let them crack on that's 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 great um because it's not you know what the point I guess of of recognizing the work and and showing it as being successful is on one hand to talk back to those the, the way that women are made responsible for preventing sexual violence and the way women are blamed the times when they're not successful you know to be able to say hey actually can you can you just can everyone just realise how much women are having to restrict themselves daily because of sexual violence? And can we then stop blaming women when they experience sexual violence? Because actually they've had to live a lot of their life restricted because of the fear of this thing. And then this thing has happened to them anyway. You know, so can we just on one hand give women a break around that and I'm saying that to women and to men you know again there's been a number of studies that have shown that women can sometimes be more harsh can 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 be more victim blaming of other women uh, around things like uh, sexual assault and rape and I think that that comes down to the to again the fact that this safety work isn't talked about even amongst women we don't talk to each other about what we're doing and we blame other women if we perceive that they're not doing all of the things that we feel are automatic, that we feel a common sense. And so for me, there's something really important about making it visible and making it speakable. And that by doing that, hopefully we start to see the injustice in the fact that we've got half of the population, including, as we said at the beginning, you know, girls from seven, eight, nine years old, having to perform this form of invisible labor that men are not, and that women are never able to experience as being something that's actually quite a unique and developed skill set that they've built from experience over time. You know, that's really interesting that that women are critical of other women for not doing the safety work properly, right? It's almost like, you know, a lesson to be learned, you know, like in school, we learned our multiplication tables. And if you study hard enough, you'll pass and you'll get an A. That's another bad analogy. (laughs) Like women, (laughs) women are taught these safety lessons and then we judge other women if they don't learn the lessons well enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an excellent way to put it. And again, we need to not blame women for doing that. Like this is the thing. It's not about then blaming women for being too blamey of other women like that just (laughs) puts us in a circle it's about understanding how women are situated in a social context that encourages women to feel that this behavior is part of what it means to be a woman we we are encouraged to not see this as something external that someone does we're encouraged to think about it as being common sense this is just it is just common sense as a woman in the world that you do not walk home by yourself in the dark that's just common sense. And as long as we keep it as common sense and we don't actually interrogate why, why is that Why is that the case? You know, that's not normal. That's not inevitable. That's not biological. That is um, socially produced. And as long as we don't interrogate that, of course, we're going to blame women that we perceive as kind of transgressing these norms that have been established for women's behavior in order to keep ourselves safe. Yeah. You know what else I think is what was really interesting in in research that you cited was that women fear rape 
more than murder because rape is often depicted as unsurvivable, which is not logical, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's quite, when you start to get into some of the research that's been done around that, it's quite astounding when you see how much, again, women's resistance and women's resilience has been under acknowledged. You know, we don't talk about the resilience of survivors. We don't talk about, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of women and girls in the world that have survived and and been through one of the most destabilizing experiences that you can have, you know, and it's not saying that because you've been through it, everything's fine and you come out the other end and it's a nice linear process, but we don't focus on those stories of resilience and resistance. We, we focus a lot on the damage and again, going back to media representations, I mean, media isn't everything, but we do take a lot of information from it. And um, yeah, when I was researching for the book, I found a number of things that were talking about how disproportionately in entertainment shows, sexual violence is seen to result in death. And so it's, it's completely disproportionate that women are seen to have been raped and killed, raped and killed. And, we, and when you see um, media reports, you know, where this has happened, raped and killed, raped and killed. But we very rarely focus on you know, the fact that, that women are raped and go on to work in rape crisis centres and to do incredible forms of activism and to become academics and, and work in this area and to, to do awareness raising, all of these things become invisible and we only ever focus on, yeah, sexual violence, as you said, as, as unsurvivable. So how does a woman's experience in her private spaces, private lives, how does that shape the fear that she has in public spaces? I'm thinking of, you know, maybe you have an aggressive father or or an overbearing father or, you know, maybe there's been domestic violence in the home and that carries out into how you carry yourself in public spaces. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be different for for different women how they choose to kind of embody or respond to those experiences but thinking about a couple of women one woman that stands out that I interviewed she was at the time in relationship with a violent man and um, she said that what she when she was then sexually harassed in public what she experienced was it, it kind of compounded this feeling of her being worthless and that her value was just in her position as being something for men to interact with so it was like she didn't feel safe in a private space but she also wasn't safe in a public space um with strangers and it's those kind of things that I think as a society we 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 should all I I would feel that we do all feel that that's wrong you know that that the fact that some women are experiencing unsafety in their private spaces, you know, in their home, they're coming home at night and that is an unsafe space for them. That means that we need to be making sure that work is safe for women, that school is safe for women and that public space is safe for women to give these women places where they can start to expand that sense of self and 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 feel a little bit freer and that that might support them to be able to to live with what's happening in that private space another woman as well that I spoke to who had a ex-husband who was very physically violent he ended up he almost killed her and she was in hospital but she's just told me that one of the things that really got him going um, basically was if he perceived that another man in public space was looking at her in a particular way and that he would sometimes if they went to bars and a man talked to her or looked at her again things she's not in control of he felt she was so responsible for that behavior that he would take her kind of around the corner and either beat her up or, or verbally abuse her and so there's connections here between men seeing women as being private property and that if they're being interacted in public space by another man that's some kind of theft of their property and there's connections for women in terms of how it makes you feel that these things that have happened in childhood or might be happening in private spaces with men that you know with men that you love uh, can leave you with feelings about yourself that are then confirmed when a complete stranger thinks that they're entitled to tell you you know, whatever they want to tell you about yourself. And and that's an important point as well, is that, again, a lot of the time we think about sexual harassment just in terms of quote-unquote complimentary comments. So things like, hey, beautiful, hey, sexy, nice legs, those kind of things. But I was really surprised. I can't remember the statistics. I think it was around a third of women that I spoke with have been insulted in public about their appearance by a random stranger. So told that they're too fat, that they should go to Weight Watchers, told they have crab legs, um, uh, a a range of things, some with some very bad words, actually. Um, 
but a range of things that again the the feeling there one of the women was saying to me you know and she was young as well which kind of broke my heart she's about 21 22 and and she was saying you know I went home and I felt so bad she was told she was called fat or ugly or something in public and she went home and felt so bad because she was like I must be I must be so ugly if a stranger feels they have to tell me that you know, this isn't even someone who knows me. This is someone who just passing me by was compelled to tell me, I really, I really, truly must be really fat. I really must be really ugly. And so you start to see how those things blur between public spaces, things that she may have been told in private spaces and things that she feels about herself. Yeah. You know, I, that's really interesting. That's, that's one thing that we don't talk often enough in, in relation to this topic is the confusion that many women and girls feel around these intrusions and whether they should be flattered. Right. You know, I, and, and, you know, you hear women kind of going on about, you know, oh, I, you know, I'm a mom now and I, or, you know, I'm older and I don't get harassed as much as I used to. Yeah, and yeah. That, that is really confusing. Exactly. And that, and that tells us something, right? I mean, that tells us something really important about how we've been told to value the opinions of strange men about our appearance. Because when you think about it in a really logical way, actually, you, you don't care. You don't care what that random person that you just happened to cross on the street thinks about what you look like. I mean, that's not something that logically, you know, most women care that much about. But when they don't interact with you in a way that you've been told is the way that they should interact with you, that can be experienced as a loss. So I absolutely spoke to women that said exactly that as they were older. They said that they started to feel invisible and that it was, there was a bit of a loss in not being, you know, being able to walk past a building site and not feeling as though someone was going to wolf whistle at them. But then they talked about, you know, other forms of sexual harassment. So again, we see that it's kind of, it's a continuum and there's different forms and different behaviours. So older women talking about that idea of being invisible. So there was one woman that I spoke to that was, I can't remember, she was in her 60s, late 60s, and she was talking about how men actually physically don't see her, or she feels as though men actually physically don't see her. And that for her is felt as an intrusion in public space. So men will bump into her, they'll push past her, they will walk in front of line and in front of the line with her. And she feels as though she's becoming actually physically invisible. And also for women, again, thinking about the the insults and, and thinking about the breadth of this kind of behavior, women from black and minority ethnic background being subjected to a really particular form of sexual harassment that's racialized. And so it not just being about what you look like in terms of that complementary feeling, but that being backed up and, and underpinned sometimes by some really racist stereotypes and tropes. So the idea that black women should always be up for it or that they should have to engage or the idea that Asian women are supposed to be submissive and supposed to be passive. You know, we have in the UK a rise of women who are visibly Muslim in public spaces, so wearing the hijab or burqa, being directed for a really particular type of public sexual harassment. And it is sexual because they're being directed, the harassment's being directed at them because they're women, they're identifiably uh, Muslim in public. And so it's that intersection of being both religiously motivated and motivated by sexism, or both motivated by racism and motivated by sexism. And so for those women over time, you know, if that sort of behavior starts to drop off, I can't imagine that it's experienced as a loss. I mean, that, you know, that's a that's a really particular form of, of telling women that you're not welcome in public. You know, I think it would be really interesting if we could somehow quantify the amount of freedom that women lose in relation to the safety work that we do. If we could quantify yeah, right. it in relation to the amount of freedom that men have, you know, in the way that we can quantify pay equity. But I don't think we can do that. <laughs> that would be that would be fantastic. I have I don't know how you would do that, but exactly. I mean I mean yeah, it's it's massive. That's the thing. The thing that I really found was that it's so it becomes so normalized and it becomes so habitual that women aren't even thinking of this in terms of reducing our freedom. Where, you know, it's it's this idea of safety being in tension with freedom and to increase your safety, you automatically reduce your freedom. But then that's kind of being configured as being just part of the way that the world is it's just part of the way that the world is that you don't dress like that or you don't go that particular route home or you know you walk through the streets uh, another thing that we were talking about was this idea of like hardening the target so walking through the streets with a stern 
not too stern. You don't want to be told to cheer up or smile, but stern enough so people know not to interact with you, kind of face on, you know, a woman saying, I don't want to walk through the streets looking like that. Sometimes I'm actually really happy, like, I don't, but I don't want to smile because I think that, that invites behavior. And these, these are tiny little chips away at our ability to be free and our ability to be I think that's the thing that really came out for me it's just the ability to be when you think about public space for loads of women because of all of the work that we have to do in our private spaces or because of experiences of violence in our homes public space is this unique moment between you know it's we're moving it's transitory we're not at work yet or we're not at school yet or we're not at the shops yet we're not doing anything yet and at the same time we're not at home. So we've got kind of time to ourselves. That's what that space should be for, that commuting time should be for, that walking in public should be for that time to just be. And the fact that that's what gets taken away, that you can't just be, that you are having to think and and consider escalation and try and evaluate the intentions of, of people who you don't know, that really disrupts your ability to just be in public space. And that's really sad because that's one of the only times that we have you know, as women, um, as humans as well, but particularly as women, where there, there isn't that many obligations on us. There's not that much other stuff that we have to do. You know, if our trainer's late, our trainer's late, we can't do anything about it. And we should be able to enjoy the freedom that that space gives us, but we're unable to because we're having to, to constantly think about our safety. My next guest, Emily May, is the co-founder and executive director of Hollaback. And that's a global organization and movement with the goal of ending public harassment. The org was founded following a viral incident in New York City in 2005. A young woman named Tao Nguyen was riding the R train in New York when a man sat across from her and staring at her started to masturbate. Nguyen took out her phone, snapped a photo of the man and posted it on the internet. The whole thing went viral, and that was the beginning of this people-led movement to end harassment. Here is Emily May describing Hollaback's mission and how and why it was started. Yeah, so Hollaback is a movement to end harassment in all of its forms, and we started it in 2005. Um, And it was really started with this idea of this harassment that we face on the street all day long. You know, why isn't anybody doing anything about it? You know, when it comes to harassment in the workplace, there's people who stand up and take action and do stuff. There's processes and plans and HR manuals. But when it comes to sexual harassment on the street, nobody does anything. So we thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if we started to do something and we were inspired by a young woman named Tao Nguyen who was riding the New York City subway when an older man sat down across from her and pulled out his penis and started to masturbate. And Tao pulled out her 2005 flip phone cell phone camera um, and took his picture with the idea of taking it to the police. But when she took it to the police, they more or less ignored her. They were like, he's already seven or eight stops away. There's nothing that we can do. And so Tao took that photo and she put it on Flickr, the photo sharing website, and um, it made it to the front cover of the New York Daily News, which is our local tabloid here. And it seemed like everybody had a story or knew somebody that had a story. My boss had seen that exact guy masturbating on the subway in front of her. And so we just thought, what if we did what Tao did? And we started to document our experiences as a way of shining a light on what was going on. I mean, what stood out to me the most about the story is that she expected that the police would do something. That doesn't surprise me, actually. I mean, they didn't act because generally these things are considered unremarkable. You know, perhaps I'm jaded, but I would not have expected the police to do anything about that. But then I thought, you know, that's really sad because we've conditioned ourselves to believe that this is the reality of being a woman in public. And of course, the people who should be there to protect us Art. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that was 2005, 2018. We do do sensitivity trainings with the NYPD. But look, they're not nearly as comprehensive enough. We still haven't convinced them to have um, those sensitivity trainings in their boot camp when they're onboarding new police officers. Um, and the reality is, is that a lot of these reports still aren't taken seriously. And even worse, um, you know, they can be met with skepticism when people don't believe people or they think that 
they just need to buck up or deal with it. Yeah. The thing that I love about Hollaback is that most of the work that I've seen around street harassment has been either academic or legislative. And the U.S., of course, has been slower to enact legislation to tackle this. And I know in other countries they have, but Hollaback does both the research and the actual tangible groundwork. So that's what I really love about Hollaback. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, it's interesting from the legislative perspective because I think globally, I think people's first instinct when it comes to street harassment is, oh, let's criminalize it, let's criminalize it. And um, at Hollaback, we actually don't endorse increasing criminalization around street harassment for a few reasons. You know, one, and, and I think the big one is the way in which particularly men of color, become hyper-criminalized in these scenarios, that laws like this are used and targeted at them. And I think that there is a tremendous amount of uh, hesitation in communities of color to go to police with stories like this because of that um, and because of you know the, the way in which they're implemented is quite racist. And then I think there's also, um, on top of that, just the practicality, right? Like the practicality of a viewer to go and report every single incident of harassment to the police, you would be at the police station all day long. Like you would, you wouldn't be able to have a job. And, you know, people, when people talk about solutions to street harassment, they don't talk about wanting to spend all day at the police station or even interfacing with the police at all. Like they just talk about it wanting to stop. And I think that's where those cultural solutions start to show up. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. I hadn't actually thought about it that way, because in some cultures, you know, creating laws may work. You know, cultures that don't have these disparities in, you know, policing in you know certain neighborhoods and certain neighborhoods where there's, you know, differences in race, they may not have that. Like I'm thinking of I think Japan has laws, you know, of har- against harassing women on subways. And I think maybe in France they have laws, but, mm-hmm. you they know, they probably- in France. Yeah. Yeah, did they? And so that that may work there, possibly, but they don't have also the the disparities in policing. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the uh, the other thing I think when we look towards solutions and we look towards culture change, um, the New York City Council has done some really interesting things recently where they have been passing laws that require employers who have more than 15 employees to get sexual harassment training that includes bystander intervention tactics. So if you're not familiar with it, bystander intervention is something that we do a lot of because it's about um, getting communities to stand up for each other. It's about doing something when you see harassment happening and doing it in a way that's safe, you know, that doesn't involve putting yourself at risk. Um, and they also just passed, are looking at passing a law for nightclubs where security guards and bartenders um, would be required to get that same sexual harassment, bystander intervention training, uh, which I think is just such a such a boon because, you know, just because you're a security guard or, you know, a bartender doesn't mean that you are briefed in, in how to handle these incidences with sensitivity. And we know that bars have a tremendous amount of sexual harassment happening in them. So, you know, I think, I think broadly, like, you know, society is moving in the right way and we want to see more and more people get training and awareness on this kind of stuff. Yeah. So if you, if you don't use laws or legislation, how do you plan to curb it? Yeah. I think that movements really are energized when people share their story. And we have seen that certainly this year with Me Too. And Hollaback has always been collecting stories of harassment since way back in the day when we, you know, started to model ourselves after um, Tal Nguyen and, and her incredible story. And then I think you start to really see measurable social change and impact when you have local on the ground leaders. And that those are our leaders that we've trained all around the world. Another big social change lever that we have been looking at and examining is, is this idea of training, right? And I think developing a deeper sense of what sexual harassment is, is critical. And how do you show up for each other? You know, some people might say, well, it's really obvious, like how you would show up for your friend or your, you know, family member or whatever it is. Um, But for a lot of us, it's not really obvious. You know, and we think that we have to strap on superhero spandex and swoop down and beat everybody up if we're going (laughs) to effectively intervene. Um, And that's just not the case. So we've been doing a tremendous amount of those pieces as well. And, you know, with with an issue, particularly like what we call street harassment, we've also taken the tack of looking at research because it's 
so incompletely researched compared to things like sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, and it's so prevalent and it so disproportionately impacts young folks. And so I think figuring out how to get more data on this to show people that this happens, it matters. Um, and we've seen just, you know, I've been doing this for 13 years now, believe it or not. Um, and we've seen the tides shift so significantly on this issue during that time. Um, it's just, it's been incredible. It's been incredible. I, I grew up like watching, you know, and, and looking and studying at the movements in the 60s and 70s, thinking like, you know, what it, what like that is possibly going to happen for my generation. And I think, you know, I have witnessed it firsthand when it comes to this issue of sexual harassment during my lifetime. It has been a tremendous title shift. And that's on the back of the tremendous title shift that happened in the 80s and 90s around, you know, Anita Hill. I think, you know, our generation has, has built off of that in a meaningful way and been able to take it to the next level. No, you're right. I mean, data is scarce on this. When I started doing research for this episode, and particularly when I started to look for women's accounts of their experiences of public harassment, I stumbled across the work of Fiona Vera Gray, and she wrote the book, The Right Amount of Panic. And for her research, she talked to many women who had instances of street harassment, whose stories were told in her book. They recount incidents of street harassment starting as early as age seven age seven. Yeah. Yeah, it does start as young as seven. Um, and, you know, and we see that at least 50% of folks have been harassed by the time they're 12. Um, and the vast majority of young women have been harassed around the age of 16, 17. And when we think about this issue, so often, like, you know, all of our sort of stereotypes like pop up and all of our myths start to pop up. And this idea that you're only getting harassed on the street because you're, you know, wearing a slutty outfit and you know, all this stuff yeah. or you're out yes, at the yes. wrong time at night. Meanwhile, you know, that's not what the data shows. The data shows these are like kids trying to go to school, trying to go to the pool. You know what I mean? This is not, right. um, this is not, you know, somebody's wild night out. Although even if it was somebody's wild night out, they deserve to get there safely. But, you know, I think, I think the data in this area really shows a different picture than what our assumptions are. This falls so neatly into our rape culture, the culture of blaming women for what happens to them, you know, which is absurd because there are very few crimes where we actually blame the victim so consistently. But in my own life, you know, I remember being warned as early as age 11 or 12 that, you know, Jen, your skirt is too short or that top is too tight, mm -hmm. you know. And, and and my intent was not to seduce some stranger or some jerk who slowed down his car to harass me on, you know, my way to band practice. You know, I was merely thinking, you know, I wanted to dress like my favorite star. It was a very innocent choice. So, you know, we start to internalize that blame really early on. And it often begins with people who love us, you know, sisters and mothers and, you know, older women. Yeah. And you see that institutionalized in the form of dress codes for, you know, kids in elementary school and middle school. Um, this idea that if you just wear the right thing, that it'll, you know, stop the predatory behavior. Um, and it's the wrong message to be sending because ultimately it doesn't matter what you wear, you should be able to walk down the street and feel safe and confident. And, you know, and that goes for mini skirts, it goes for burkas, it goes for everything in between. Um, and I think that our tendency to police what women wear is ridiculous in light of, you know, really looking at the root issue and the real problem. So Hollaback has site leaders in cities all over the world. What is their role? So they lead the movement in their own communities. So they define the problem um, and the what the solution means. And that looks like different things in different parts of the world. I would say that everywhere we've ever launched a site, you know, there are questions as to the legitimacy of whether or not this is a significant problem. And and everywhere, you know, our site leaders are sort of having to go against the grain and, and repeat ad nauseum, like, this is a problem. This happens. This is significant, right? And so they've done everything from um, trainings. We teach them how to do our bystander intervention training and adapt it to their local context. They have done work in, in schools. They have done um, public events like rallies and protests. They have also done 
done research in their community is looking at the extent of this problem and trying to use that research to demonstrate um, the need for action in their communities. They've also done fun things like art projects. Um, for example, you know, public street art or something we call chalk walks where you just get sidewalk chalk out and um, write messages in public spaces about why harassment isn't okay. So it, it really, you know, it varies on the location. It varies on the leadership in that location, what type of tax they take, what they feel like is going to resonate most or their community needs most to address harassment. Uh, but, you know, I think that resoundingly people are, are telling us that they're hitting a lot of a lot of walls, you know, that there's a lot of resistance to this idea that, you know, harassment isn't okay. So I want to talk about a study that your org conducted where you looked at the demographics and the socioeconomic status of the typical harasser and their targets. What is the profile of a typical harasser and the environment that street harassment usually thrives in? So we have seen that harassment is more prevalent in high density areas. So, for example, um, if you are going to get harassed of one out of 50 men passing you on the street, it's going to take a lot longer to do that in a Walmart parking lot than it is in the middle of Times Square. And, you know, and, and population density does seem to be the number one indicator that we see for harassment. You know, you have to see people out on the street in order to get yeah. street harassed. Um, but beyond that, I, I think there is there is no consistency in terms of who street harassers are. Um, you know, they cross lines of race and class and identity. And we see harassment happening in rural locations. We see it happening in urban locations. Um, so the idea that there's one type of, of street harasser um, hasn't really played out in, in our experience. Yeah, there isn't one type of street harasser, but there was a study, and I think this was one of your studies that showed that it does affect people from lower socioeconomic status is more. And I think that has probably to do with the the density of the areas that they possibly live in rather than, you know, the type of people who are harassing. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. Yeah. So folks from, you know, lower income backgrounds, regardless of where they're living, they have a, a number of challenges that make them more predisposed to experiencing street harassment, namely around the types of, you know, transportation that they have access to, right? If you are a Hollywood superstar or a CEO of a corporate or whatever, you know, you're going to be taking um, cars, you know, wherever you go, you know, you're not going to spend a lot of time um, alone on the street walking home at night, um, or alone, even alone on the street walking to work, right? Like you're going to be very tightly ushered from point A to point B. And even people who aren't at that level, but have significant financial resources, um, don't have to take public transportation, don't find themselves walking from point A to point B, the same prevalence that people who are lower income do. So we do see that data, you know, certainly, certainly playing out there. Yes, that actually aligns with my own experience. I noticed that the more I became quote unquote grown up, mm -hmm. you know, in college and shortly afterwards, you know, you live where you can. And I didn't always have access to a car, you know, but as we mature, we gradually get better jobs and can afford to live in less densely populated neighborhoods. You know, perhaps the job that you have has a carpool. I mean, I can remember my very first job out of college. I suddenly was surrounded by people who were slightly better off than I was, and I could carpool to work. I didn't have to take public transportation, and I could eventually afford my own car. And as those small shifts in my personal life happened, I did notice that I was shielded to some extent from street harassment. Yeah. Your study also looks at a neighborhood's walkability score, and it compares it to the instances of harassment. So what's the relationship there? Yeah, you know, the more people who are walking down the street, the more likely there is for street harassment to happen. Um, and so, you know, in New York City, for example, we see areas like Wall Street, Times Square, Midtown, you know, areas that have high population density. They tend to be transportation hubs, lots of people coming into the city, um, more people, more street harassment, right? And we see that play out in, in lower denser areas as well, but it's in, in Technicolor here in New York City where we have so many folks. So the answer to this may be obvious, but street harassment is, of course, on the continuum of rape culture. What is the specific link to rape culture? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, street harassment is on a spectrum of, you know, gender-based violence. And, you know, and I think that rape culture creates a culture where rape is okay, where sexual harassment is okay, sexual assault is okay, sexual innuendos, sexual jokes, uh, you know, um, everyday sexism, all of this is okay, right? And so when we have a culture 
when all of these behaviors are okay, it leads us to have more of it right? because there's nobody yeah. standing up and saying, actually, this isn't okay. Except the reality is, is that now people are coming forward in hordes and saying, now this isn't okay very loudly. Um, I think that is then having the effect of, you know, people who were a lot of folks, a lot of regular everyday folks who are committing some of these like lower level behaviors, maybe are waking up and being like, oh, wait a minute, like this is not okay. I think there's another population of people though that are looking at the Me Too movement and and it's in some ways resisting it and becoming emboldened and saying like, I don't care what you know, what they want. I'm going to harass anyway. I'm going to do this anyway. Like, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. So, it, you know, with every sort of step step forward, I think that we have in society, there's always going to be resistance to it. It's never going to be an easy path. Um, but I think all in all, um, you know, we are moving in dramatically, you know, the, the right direction. And I've just seen such significant progress on this issue over the past 13 years. But, you know, it also seems like all of the work and, you know, most of, if not all of the burden of tackling this has fallen on the shoulders of women and the shoulders of victims and, you know, targets of the harassment, which is also very typical of rape culture. So how do you tackle this from the harasser's end? You know, it feels like women and victims are always doing the heavy lifting. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's all that, you know, hold your keys in your hand and check under your car before you get in it. And, you know, make sure you have a buddy who knows where you are and you've got location on your phone and you've got this app downloaded and that app downloaded. And I think that is puts tremendous pressure on you know, people who experience a lot of harassment, especially women, um, especially LGBTQ folks to, you know, do the right thing. Um, and the reality is, is what I see is people who experience a lot of harassment have a strong tendency to blame themselves, um, regard, you know, and it, and it's because society's blaming them and society's telling them here, you take these ABCD steps and you will not get harassed. And that's just not real. They get harassed anyway. And so, I've seen like those posters that are like, hey, let's not tell, you know, women what to do to prevent rape. Let's tell men not to rape, right? I think no. the same thing applies applies here. Um, what I would say as an iteration to that is not just telling people not to sexually harass one another, but I would say, you know, for that all of us have a responsibility to stand up and to have a response when we witness harassment happening. Um, even as little as a knowing glance can reduce trauma for the person who's harassed, but intervening in different ways whether you're, you know, starting a conversation with the person who is being harassed, whether you are creating a distraction, whether you're directly, you know, talking to and attempting to de-escalate the person doing the harassing, right? All of these kinds of things set a boundary that help um, folks to really reclaim their space. And I think it's it's those type of gestures are what is going to shift the culture and start to make this less okay. Um, because those are the interventions in, in, in the moment, right? It's not just the stories. That's where the rubber hits the road and we start taking action. And that's action that all of us can take in in some way, shape or form. Yeah. You know, because I, I, I've i been street harassed, of course, but, you know, I have no idea how I would convince a chronic cat caller that, you know, what they're doing is wrong. Right. But, yeah. you know, what, <laughs> but no, what you're saying? You on that. and the reality is, is that the, um, you know, <laughs> it's not when somebody's actively harassing you, it's not the best educational moment. Right. <laughs> like all of us, myself included, um, have this temptation to be like a, a one-woman street harassment educational machine. Um, and it's just not, it's not a great learning moment for them. Um, however, you know, you can still set that boundary in, in different ways or, you know, have people who are around you set it for you. And even just sort of setting that boundary and acknowledging that, you know, this isn't okay, this isn't acceptable is um, is significant and does, does, I think, show long-term impact. Right. I see what you're saying. You're saying like if more people take an active role in intervening in these kind of non-confrontational ways, it will send the message and change the culture mm -hmm. to the people who have a tendency to harass, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, I can't imagine myself, you know, saying, excuse me, sir, you know, what you just said made me feel objectified. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, you can say like, hey, like, you know, 
stop asking me for my number. Um, you're making me feel uncomfortable, you know, or, or, you know, stop asking me for my number. That's inappropriate. Right. And saying what you want them to stop being really clear about that. And then saying, you know, it's inappropriate or it makes me uncomfortable or whatever it is, I think is, you know, is important. The trick there is, is that then you just don't escalate it, you know, when they're like, Oh, well, you're ugly anyway, which is like usually what they tell me. Um, (laughs) Yeah. um, um, then it's like, you know, you kind of fight your desire to want to have like a witty comeback and give them the finger um, for no other reason than just, you know, your your own personal safety and the fact that you're probably not going to convince them of much at that point. They're, they're already pretty pissed off for being called out. Right. You know, that reminds me of another link this has to rape culture because often women are targets because, you know, men feel rejected. And, you know, and I remember one of the scariest incidents that I had was when I was waiting tables in a restaurant, a restaurant full of people, a client, you know, who was unhappy about not getting my attention as his waitress followed me down a long, you know, empty corridor and was asking for my number. And, you know, when I said, you know, again, you know, no, I'm, I'm not interested, you know, just kept following me, you know, no one was around and then got really angry. And I was really afraid mm-hmm. for my safety. Mm-hmm. You know, he was angry and saying, you know, you think you're too good for me and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And this was a really nice restaurant. <laughs> You know, so this guy, you know, he wasn't, you know, someone that you would you would expect. I mean, I don't know. That's probably um, a stereotype that I don't want to perpetuate, but I didn't expect it in this space, at least. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of the risks that women take when they when they do talk back, you know, and and speak up for themselves. But we can't let that Mm -hmm. win. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really real. Right. And that's why, you know, a lot of people, we do trainings on how to respond to harassment and, um, you know, and a lot of people, uh, when we first started doing them would come, (laughs) come up to me and say like, you know what, sometimes I, I feel like I, I just need to smile and pretend like it's okay. Or even say thank you and like keep going. And, you know, is that okay? And like the reality is yes. Like your number one priority um, is your own safety. And so if that means that you need to fake it like it's okay, that's okay. You know, and, and we've re- really reworked that training to emphasize that and, and underscore the fact that like you have to trust your instincts if you don't feel safe or even if you you know, feel plenty safe. You just honestly don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with it at that juncture. That's okay because it's not your responsibility to single-handedly end harassment. It's their responsibility not to harass you. Is there a model anywhere in the world where they've had some success, right, with curbing street harassment that we can use to follow here? Um, you know, I think the stuff that we've seen around the world has really been echoed in work that Hollaback has been doing. You know, we've seen success with um, research globally, really shining a light on this issue. We've seen tremendous success with people coming forward and sharing their stories, especially, you know, as the internet has sort of grown up in tandem with the, the movement to end harassment. We've seen a tremendous amount of stories shared online as well, which give a certain degree of protection and anonymity for the folks telling them. You know, we have also seen a lot of promise in education and and training programs around the world, particularly, you know, this idea of bystander intervention and what we do to take care of each other. Um, So no, no, no culture, no country has come up with a perfect response, uh, a perfect solution to street harassment. I think if they had, we would all be trying to scale it. But it's because the problem is has so many heads. It, it is such a complex problem that really it feeds into, you know, uh, racism and sexism and homophobia and ableism, right? All of these things, right, then create this problem of, of street harassment. And so I think that it's a huge, hairy challenge to solve. And I think ultimately, you know, we chip away a little bit here. We chip away a little bit there. We, you know, we, we throw the spaghetti at the wall and, and we see what works. But we know that one thing that works is when people stand up, step up, speak out and take care of each other. Well, Emily May, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and subscribe on iTunes. And also please write a review. Those two things are so valuable in the podcast world. It helps other people discover the electorate. Also, please follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's at electorate for all three. And until next time, keep up the good fight.